Welcome to the Ed Alia podcast, hosted by Peter Kranitz and Brad Davis. Each episode focuses on a concept that represents a fundamental issue in contemporary life, examining it through works of culture and philosophy that help us understand its impact and explain our present situation. Hello, I'm Brad Davis. Good afternoon. And I'm Peter Kranitz. Good whatever time of day you happen to be listening. And, um... We're back at it again. This is part three in our series of theory in a time of quarantine. Today we talk about post-liberalism. Brad, can you tell us a little bit about what post-liberalism is? Post-liberalism is an umbrella term for a lot of different ideologies and um, political theories that sort of as the name implies are trying to figure out what comes next after liberalism. So when we get to the end of the Cold War, uh, Soviet Union uh, breaks apart. We have the United States appearing as the global hegemonic unipolar top of the heap power. And particularly... And this is the the so-called end of history, right? The the end of history, yes. Um, And The belief is that liberalism, the ideology of the United States and Western Europe, beat communism into submission. Uh, And as Peter said, we are perhaps at the end of history. We can find no greater meaning or value in life than maximizing our individual liberty, our independent choice, our self-identity and our ability to make choices as consumers in a capitalist economic framework. The capitalist economic framework is like specifically hyper-globalized, right? That's a big part of it. Yeah. And that's, that's, so once, once the Cold War is kind of over, you have, uh, Liberals, and and I I use that term referring to both Democrats and Republicans, ideological liberals who feel like they've succeeded. They have beaten all enemies. What comes next? And sort of how um, communism, um, particularly uh, Leninist communism, communism imagines a global uh, revolution uh, liberalism sought to expand itself globally. Uh, and that that's what would probably be best termed as neoliberalism, trying to spread uh, free markets and free trades uh, throughout the globe to all sorts of different countries, trying to open up all resources and all labor for a free trade ar- arrangement. And also um, the ideology, I think it's fair to say, uh, was one of the leading justifications for America's police actions or uh, military interventions in various different countries um, under both Bushes, Clinton, Obama, and President Trump. So while much had been bandied about about liberal triumphalism, that uh, nothing could be greater than the individual, that... uh, you know, 
the ends of our lives are to maximize our uh, pleasure and consumption, and the government should seek to preserve that capacity and our ability to create our own identities, conceptualize of ourselves independently. That was a great promise. Um, and in the last so decade we... or so, it seemed to have not quite measured up to everything. Uh, sorry, what were you going to say? So if, if it sounds like, you know, America won the Cold War, uh, we have a global economy with uh, the maximum number of consumers and of producers of goods to be shipped across the world, to be bought and sold by other people. Um, what? Why do we need a post-liberalism? If this is already the end, if we've already we've already achieved it, what what makes you realize, or what makes us as a society realize? I feel like we kind of have that maybe liberalism isn't quite all it was cracked up to be in the nineties. Uh, I think first and foremost, uh, what most post liberals would tell you is that liberalism does not satisfy us. It may satiate some passions. It might at times fill our appetites, but doesn't in a meaningfully way provide purpose in our lives, feel fulfilling. And uh, I, I think the general sense of ennui of the last 20, 15, 10 years, I, I think it's increasing constantly, could be attributed to sort of the atomization uh, and breakdown of communities that liberalism seeks, both uh, communities in the broader scheme of nation states and within it, uh, political communities. I mean, it, uh, the job market has made it such that people rarely, rarely, rarely uh, stay their whole lives in their hometowns and education is often something people move for. But also beyond that, the market and the sense of individual liberty have kind of destroyed faith communities, have destroyed um community associations and so there is a sense that part of how liberalism achieves its goals is truly by atomizing the individual and that hasn't always been a great thing and right well i so i just started reading uh christopher lash's the culture of narcissism um which is I'm not very far into it so i can't pretend to be able to talk about all of what it discusses but Glash uh, talks a lot about how he was writing in the 70s and the book came out in 79. So it's pretty old, but still feels incredibly relevant. But he talks a lot about how the people who, you know, us, people who are living in contemporary society, people who are living in the 70s even, uh, begin, they get involved in things like uh, political movements, political radicalism, or other things like that. Um, any kind of uh, movement or group thing, not so much to subsume their identity into a larger group whole, but just for a sense of identity at all. Um, so it's instead of trying to come together to become something greater, everyone is still trying to figure out what they are even as an individual and are kind of seeking larger groups. And I feel like we see that now with, you know, identity politics, it's, it's built into the name, which, you know, that's a bit of a, a pun, not intentional but you know the idea of people's identity being staked on what they believe in whether it's that whether it's alt-right whether it's uh trumpian or uh whatever bernie sanders socialist it's not it's 
less about the movement and more about the individuals in the movement. Well, and I think, Peter, you led a great uh, discussion in our last episode about accelerationism and what uh, sort of cultural schizophrenia does to individual identities. And all, all those identities you, you were just discussing, I, I think would be, uh, it'd be proper to describe them as, as being transactional. These aren't uh, permanent identities. They're not really identities other people um I mean, for in a lot of ways, uh, negatively, but I, I think uh, historically, people's identities haven't really been something that they can choose. It's something assigned to them. And to to some extent, it's probably a good thing that people can adopt their own identities and aren't uh, judged for uh, characteristics uh, or um facts of, of circumstance or, or their personal histories that they can't control but the removal of uh community bonds that come from some identities has been disastrous and, and is again with accelerationism the hyper identification and constant picking up and dropping of different identities leaves everyone sort of floating around feeling uh alone and like they have nothing nothing they're attached to Right, and Lash also makes the point that uh, previously, pretty much until World War II-ish, people in pretty much everywhere thought of themselves in continuity with their ancestors and with their people who would come after them in their genetic line at the very least. There's a much bigger sense of belonging to a larger sweep of history in a way of being living as much in the past and the future as in the present that doesn't exist so much anymore. Um, But anyways... How do we see the, how does this relate to the coronavirus and quarantine? Coincidental with these personal factors, uh, personal influences of liberalism, it also takes shape in the political order. And that is largely through political processes and institutions that uh, demand sort of consultation and popular support, uh, heavy reliance on public discourse, and... Those sorts of things are difficult in, in times of emergency, like the coronavirus quarantine. And so both in real terms, if you have to consult a large body of legislate legislators, they in turn have to consult their stakeholders and them in turn, uh, all of us, that's a lot of people uh, to work through to try and find a solution to a a threat that is constantly evolving and where time is very very uh critical additionally there has been and, and i think uh both people on the the far left and far right and i think a lot of centrists uh would acknowledge that the contemporary liberal regimes the political institutions have grown complacent and largely incompetent in the past couple of decades. And what the causes for that is, uh, what the causes for that are, are quite complex. But there are people who attribute it to the nature of being a liberal institution and seeking consultation of uh, some degree of openness, of trying to represent all sort of disparate interests rather than trying to seek immediate 
decisive action and deal with the fallout afterwards. So uh, a post-liberal government would then be uh, one that does have that total control, one that doesn't have to go through intermediaries of the people, right? Yeah, I I think that that, uh, would be true. There's a lot of different takes on what exactly would be a post-liberal state. Most of them generally are the sense that government should be much more often the words used derisively, but much more authoritarian, uh, much more hierarchical, and much more uh, much more governed by a few individuals in power rather than, than being egalitarian or, or so democratic. That makes sense. I think that uh, Foucault had a pretty good uh, grasp on that too. He used the, the plague as sort of a metaphor and a way of exploring the way that an authoritarian power would work. Uh, he has a description. Do you remember what what public what this was from? Was it Discipline and Punish or yeah? So in Discipline and Punish, he describes sort of a, a medieval city being struck and being struck by a plague. Um, where okay, so you have a, a nobleman who kind of controls this area, and he then orders everybody to be locked indoors, and the homes are locked from the outside, uh, so people cannot escape. Uh, and then there is different uh, levels of people who are within the government or the system of control who then provide for their basic needs, provide for their food, provide for their water, uh, help make determine whether or not anybody's sick, keep an accurate tally of that, of who's sick, who's not, um, and report back to the guy in charge. And then they uh, kind of just keep doing that uh, until the, the plague's eradicated. And it's a very efficient and uh, relatively quick way to get rid of a plague, even though it very much takes away all of the control from the people who are directly being affected by it. Uh, they, they... Yeah, and it, it it puts the government in a position where all of its citizens are utterly dependent, utterly reliant on it for providing them with food and safety and security, while also giving the state apparatus unparalleled surveillance capacity upon individuals, total control in shaping what information they get, the way they perceive the world outside of their individual quarantines. Um, and so plague theoretically is a fascinating way to try and understand the way political organizations work. And plague in actuality provides an opportunity for politics to quite significantly change. And I think we are seeing quite a bit of that right now. And it can happen in a few different ways. Now, the most obvious would be uh, in the state of emergency uh, that exists right now, some government, some, some singular political leader or party is able to completely overthrow uh, the established order to push their opposition out of uh, any sort of significant role and to reform the state into their own ideology, to their own image. And we could quibble about whether or not... How, yeah, go ahead. How, how exactly would that happen in, in a country like America? You know, 
like we see it already it already exists in somewhere like China and is already sort of on its way to existing in some form or another in somewhere like Turkey, maybe or Iran. But how would that happen? So I'm I am not convinced that a sudden takeover of power is too likely. I think kind of the best example of this in recent history was the military overthrow of Mohammed Morsi in Egypt uh, several years back. I don't, I haven't seen and don't expect necessarily that there will be a politi- uh, military coup or anything of the sort that totally usurps rule in any country. I think perhaps the I think certainly the more likely uh, thing to happen and perhaps the more nefarious one is maybe a creeping sense of authoritarianism. Whereas the state gradually gets more power, it's able to take control more and more aspects uh, of our life. And I think there might be an intermediate example of Viktor Orban, the leader of Hungary right now who has whose party has ooh, significant majority in the country's legislature uh, and he recently was able to enact legislation that would create an unlimited state of emergency wherein Orban has the ability to rule by decree could suspend parliament without elections and could prison in prison uh, people for spreading fake news or leaving the quarantine. This passed the Hungarian legislature 137 votes to 53 in opposition. It's significant uh, uh, approval for that. And this is what uh, Gombin was sort of worried about in his mm -hmm. article back in, was it late February? A while ago at this point, um, worried about uh, the growing normalcy of the state of exception in, in Italy and of the the threat of the government continuing to kind of encroach on those base rights that we consider very basic uh, in the sake of the public good. Uh, absolutely. And so I don't know if I would uh, describe that as a sudden taking of power or more of a creeping authoritarianism from Orban. I, I mean, there's approval for it over the past, uh, I think he's ruled, uh, he's been in power since 2010, and has gradually been moving more and more and more authoritarian uh, in, in his leadership of Hungary. This is, that is the boldest move that's occurred so far uh, during the coronavirus crisis, but could be representative of what's happening in other countries. For for example, uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin has long been uh, decried outside of Russia as sort of the the foremost example of an authoritarian uh, leader. And for years, there's been back and forth over whether Putin will actually ever give up power, whether he'll follow constitutional limits on, on um, the number of terms a president's allowed to serve and how it work. There, there are term limits. And how he got around it the last time was he had his... Uh, vice president fill in the role for him uh, for a term, maybe two. And then once uh, his vice president left, Putin uh, resumed 
uh, the presidency. I'm not sure if it's passed yet and been enacted. I know uh, the Russian legislature has been considering a, a constitutional amendment to get rid of uh, term limits entirely. So despite Putin saying for the past few years that he would respect what limits exist, it seems like he has no intention of stepping down. And perhaps, I, I think likely that would have been um, the desired outcome for Putin, coronavirus or not. But this enables great cover for for doing such a thing while people are distracted. And also, people tend to trust authoritative leaders. And, and I use that as, more as leaders with cachet and uh, charisma more when there's an emergency than otherwise. I mean, it's very common uh, throughout history to see that when grabs of power are made during an emergencies, when emergency actions are, are uh, enacted, <clears throat> when emergency measures are enacted by legislatures, it's rare for those things to ever be repealed. Uh, within the American context, I think a great, great example of this is the authorization for the use of military force that was passed back in the day, uh, giving the president a good bit of discretion to choose uh, when and how to engage primarily in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to uh, limit the spread and uh, influence of Al-Qaeda. So something that was passed for the sake of taking out Al-Qaeda without having to declare war on the countries in which they operate has now expanded into a legal justification for the United States to have uh, soldiers throughout Africa, throughout the Middle East, and elsewhere to fight any sort of terrorist group that is affiliated or can be af made to affiliate uh, on paper with with Al-Qaeda. And I, I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily, right. but it is well, telling. I feel like a, right, and another example could be something like the Patriot Act too, yeah. uh, which was enacted for very similar reasons, but uh, it's spying on American citizens, taking away what American citizens consider a very fundamental right, their ability to not be spied, spied on by the government, and it has constantly been renewed ever since it was enacted back in probably around the same time as then, if not yeah. earlier, right around 9-11. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about it several times now. That Giorgio Agamben article was was tone deaf. It, and it was... Uh, <laughs> it was... It's a little bit, yeah. <laughs> did not handle uh, the discussion of the coronavirus appropriately. But that well, he, fear that was at the center of his argument is a valid one. Yeah, perfectly justified. He, you know, there'd probably be a better way of, of bringing it up than saying the coronavirus is fake and uh, <laughs> the dead people yeah. don't matter. But, <laughs> but yeah, that that's... Well, we talked about Schmidt in the first episode of the series and his idea that all governments are based on power and the threat of violence, right? And that we just uh, kind of pretend like that doesn't exist most of the time because usually it's most... It doesn't matter. It's convenient to think that it doesn't exist, but then times like this... It, it comes back out. Yeah. And that gets me to, um, in the American context, a thinker who's been 
provoking a lot of controversy in the past couple weeks. Uh, and I now, uh, after the way this discussion has progressed, I feel bad uh, for grouping him in <laughs> with everyone else we've discussed. But uh, Adrian Vermeule <laughs> and his recent essay in The Atlantic, well, <laughs> is not. it is not... Um, I would not say he is a supporter of Viktor Orban uh, or Vladimir Putin. Many of his critics would likely associate him with him uh, and perhaps demonize him a little bit further. And so he's, well, there are these real life examples of leaders taking authoritarian control and consolidating their power within their regimes. Vermeule lays out a theoretical case for why doing such things might be good, might be right, might be just within the American uh, framework. And so in his essay, it's titled Beyond Originalism, and it uh, was published in The Atlantic. The title he wanted in, which is probably more apt, is Common Good Constitutionalism. And in this article, in this essay, he's trying to argue that the liberalism that we have fully embraced and accept as our, our North Star guiding American political actions is misguided. And what is a common jurisprudential theory on the right what is really common in conservative legal circles is the interpretive approach of originalism or, or textualism, which is a very, at times, libertarian-influenced approach to law that would have judges and scholars reading the Constitution in terms of what did the framers envision when they would have written this and how can that be used now and, it, and, it and is, Scalia was one of the big proponents of this right Scalia is certainly the most famous of its uh, proponents and the ideology the the approach is very much in opposition to conservative fears of uh, liberal judicial activism in the the past several decades of which um, you know Griswold Connecticut, Roe Wade, um, Masterpiece Cake Shop, countless uh, examples of significant policy changes caused through legal decisions. Originalism would seek to sort of limit that by preventing law from being interpreted with any sense of directionality or what it's trying to achieve. Now, Vermeule, so what does what does yeah what does Vermeule think? What where does he diverge from that? Because I've read this and I, I I'm not much of I don't know much about law. I'm a little bit unclear still on what Vermeule is really advocating for. So Vermeule would say that conservatives trying to prevent any uh, interpretation of the law towards people's conception of the good is totally misguided, and that. Descriptively, it's something that's happening and uh, you can't just play defense against. And he, in many ways, accepts uh, the legal theory of prominent uh, liberal jurists like Robert Dworkin. 
But he says, instead of trying to use the law to promote conceptions of liberal good and trying to maximize individual uh, liberty, what we should try and do is promote a substantive sense of the common good through our law. And there's a great line uh, in his essay where he says, Elaborating on the common good principle that no constitutional right to refuse vaccination exists, constitutional law will define in broad terms the authority of the state to protect the public's health and well-being, protecting the weak from pandemic pandemics and scourges of many kinds, biological, social, and economic, even when doing so requires overriding the selfish claims of individuals to private rights. And so he argues that if there is legal justification for requiring people to get vaccines. There may be plenty of legal justification to require certain economic rights for individuals or biological rights or, or social rights such that they'd be aligned to his vision of the common good. And what exactly is his vision of the common good? That is the most simple um, aspect of all of Vermeule's arguments, and that is what is good is what the Catholic Church says is good. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, straightforward. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vermeule doesn't try to create a... He doesn't have himself a vision of what a good political order would be other than that which ensures the good taught by the Catholic Church. Uh, so how does he square that with the, the United States Constitution? <laughs> um, in, he's uh, sometimes a little trollish on, on Twitter. And uh, a tweet of his might say something like, the uh, only way to best understand freedom of religion is uh, freedom for true revealed religion. Uh, or his separation of church and state might be more in line with uh, they should be separate insofar as the Catholic Church has an authoritative role above and beyond uh, domestic <laughs> politics, which both of, of course, those are of course. Uh, uh, are maybe... Uh, I'm not sure he would commit to either of those statements in exactly those terms, but in many ways he's not too far off. So that's where sort of the, the post-liberal parts of him come in, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I do think one of the interesting um, bits of his argument is that it isn't dependent on being a Catholic for it to be true or make sense. What he is saying at the core is that the liberal order doesn't profess any goods for society, except insofar as it is good for individuals to not have a common good and for them to define it on their own terms. And it would seem that any sort of common good or any true set of values would be an improvement over this. And it need not be literally uh, what what the Catholic Church teaches in its magisterium to be an improvement. 
Right. And uh, Will Lombardo had a really good piece that we published yesterday on a thwart uh, that makes the point that, well, that idea that one, there may be some transcendental goods and some, some good things and moral goods from the past that we may want to bring back, we also can't fully discount the the liberal moral goods that we've all come to, to accept. We can't fully discount people's freedoms in a way uh, that someone like Vermeule may, may like to sort of wave a magic wand and make disappear. Yeah. And, you know, Vermeule is a very serious, very thoughtful scholar. Uh, he, he has a very prestigious chair at Harvard Law School and is well-respected for his administrative legal scholarship. There are things that are valuable about the critique that do not necessarily mean we have to become a Catholic integralist state, uh, as him and some of his other compatriots uh, argue for. And, and in his tone, the way Vermeule writes and jokes and presents a lot of things, it seems to me that perhaps these aren't, they may be wishful proposals, but he may be hoping for marginal improvements in the direction uh, of what he argues for rather than a wholesale. I mean, certainly not a, a wholesale change of uh, American governance. I, his uh, methods generally seem to be uh, one would work within the American bureaucracy and political structure to to accommodate these things, not, not change any of it. Um, yeah. Vermeule's definitely an interesting fellow, worth reading his work. I, I feel bad sandwiching him uh, between two um, much more egregiously and objectively bad uh, things, I think. And but like, he's so he's so is a, a thinker who's trying to consider what happened. What do we do if we accept that the liberal project isn't all it was cracked up to be? How do we return to a sort of more... Uh, communally based and in pursuit of some some higher good that isn't just what feels good for me in the moment a little bit less hedonistic maybe than the 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 liberal late capitalist system may prefer yeah i i think that's true and uh the current crisis enables opportunity for change in that direction i also think we are starting to realize some of the limits of the liberal project in terms of how fragile our communities seem, how how limited our connections are. I think there are a lot of people right now who are returning to uh, homes, living with family that they may not have lived with for several years, and are realizing to some extent intergenerational family life isn't necessarily a bad as we've been conditioned to believe uh, in American culture, that's often been considered 18, move out on your own. It's embarrassing to live with your parents. I think perceptions of things like that are starting to shift. And we're realizing that we don't have the communal or social net that we expected that if there is ever an emergency, we could fall back safely into. That being said, something we are all falling into uh, is certainly the issues of information and news, which I think contribute to the growing authoritarianism 
of post-liberalism. And I, I don't want to harp on too much about fake news. I, I hate much discussion of it is pretty annoying and, and I think um, nefarious in its own right. But I do think it's true, as Foucault observed, the amount of state control that can grow when there's total information dominance, uh, when, when the state really is the authority in what, what is happening. Do we, do we see that happening right now at all, though, with the state really being the authority on these things? Um, I, I've read something, uh, I think the AP put out a, a statistic today that the vast majority of Americans don't actually trust Trump's uh, news briefings, his, his conferences on the coronavirus updates. Like they, That's not a trusted source of information for the majority of Americans. I accept that, and I still think that it influences the way we perceive things. Uh, Trump is up there every single day giving press conferences, and the media cycle following is almost always in response to him. This is what the president said was wrong. This is what was mistaken. This was a lie, et cetera, et cetera. But it's defined in relation to him. And so it, the the conversation writ large, and, and especially the articles and that are most popular, what's being carried on cable news, is talking about him and how he frames this. So I, I do think he has control over it. And certainly the uh, various levels of government have control over the data that's being presented and how they choose to define what's a coronavirus-related death, what isn't. Uh, the calculation of that is is very much dependent on the state. Right, but it, it seems much less centralized. It's not necessarily the the federal government that's determining this, right? Because I know like in New York, there was a pretty controversial thing in New York City. Uh, maybe, maybe was it after this weekend or maybe last weekend when de Blasio added an extra like 4,000 deaths to the coronavirus count because they weren't explicitly coronavirus related, but they were of uh, respiratory diseases that were potentially coronavirus. And that was uh, de Blasio's initiative, the mayor, uh, rather than from a, a federal agency or something. Valid. And I don't think this information dominant, what I was saying, I don't think is just lim limited to the president and his gathering of political power. I think de Blasio having that level of control extends his power within New York. Uh, and I, I think likewise, Cuomo, I, I think it is interesting that not President Trump is not necessarily the authoritative figure in the U.S. I, I don't think it's possible for him to be an authoritarian leader as uh, critics describe because there is so much power below him. And I think the power of governors like Cuomo and Gavin Newsom here in California, that has grown and their control of information and their setting uh, uh, the way they frame discourse, that certainly colors our perceptions, especially when it is in contrast to what the president is saying. So then how did this relate back to the, the post-liberalism idea? In part, whether we like it or not, the way rights and liberties are being perceived is changing. It, it has to in an emergency, but it seems like some of these might be permanent. I've heard a lot of talk 
that cell phones are going to could potentially be monitored or tracked, perhaps voluntarily, perhaps not. What they're doing in they're doing that in Israel and have been for several weeks at this point. Yeah, to to see who's spreading the virus where, and that is more control than Foucault could have possibly imagined. The state exerting on individuals. Well, do you, do you remember uh, in the Batman, the Dark Knight, that was how he mm-hmm. caught the Joker or whatever in the end, right? They like tapped into all the cell phones, were able to create a digital map of the city and they destroyed it because it was too much power for one man to have or some bullshit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's what's happening. And the most frightening example of this is most definitely China where everyone has the social scores that the government can influence. They'll block you from trains, transportation, if they, I mean, for any reason that they want to, ostensibly most of this is to prevent viral spread. But the level of control in China is possible anywhere once digital surveillance really takes hold. And I mean, I think in large part, once we're willing to give up our expectation of privacy right. in that domain. Have you ever seen the the movie The Lives of Others? I don't think so. What's it about? Awesome, awesome German movie. It won the foreign language Oscar in like 2006, which is a weird category, <laughs> by the way. But it is about a Stasi agent in East Berlin whose job it is to monitor the phones and spy on people. And so his life and his identity and the way he perceives the world ends up becoming a product of all of, I mean, much like us, we become a product of the inputs we receive. All of his inputs were phone tappings and bugs in people's homes. Uh, And so he develops weird relationships with the people he's spying on. Fantastic movie. But you know, back in the Cold War, the amount of surveillance was limited by how many officers you'd have, like like the character in this movie, who could physically spy on someone. Now that phones have the capability of being monitored, the amount of state control is. I I just I don't I don't think it's possible that we will ever be able to conceptualize our liberty. As we did prior right, to that, this. it's definitely the kind of thing that once that that cat's out of the bag, you can't put it back in. You know, you really can't uh, put the toothpaste back in the tube with that one. Uh, it, especially with the 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 ease uh, of li- of just conveniences that our technology gives us, people are willing to to give up those liberties, uh, even to a company like Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, uh, let alone the government. I mean, the government gets that data from those those private companies anyways. <laughs> Once Google has the data, the government does right. too. <laughs> but but giving them more and more and giving it to them on our side versus uh, the the corporate side is is a challenge. So I guess what what I think we should draw away from this is. The current political order doesn't seem like it's going to be able to maintain itself as it had previously. 
large part because state control is centralizing and growing stronger and stronger. There are some people like Adrian Vermeule who want to conceive of a way of how that could be used for the good and for human flourishing. There's several political leaders who are trying to actualize this within their countries and within their governments. Last week, we talked about accelerationism and how you might have to exacerbate the conditions we live in in order to create change. I think it also might be true that without doing anything, the world as we know it might start might start to fall apart or crumble. And post-liberals are particularly concerned, I think, with the human side of what that crumbling might look like and the despair of being an individual in a society without any meaning or purpose. And whether they're able to offer that in a way that we would want to live in is uncertain, but that they're trying to offer it and that they're trying to conceive of ways to strengthen the government for hopefully good purposes and bring more value into our lives, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that uh, it the, the difficulty is finding a way to do that that is something that's palatable and that doesn't actually uh, remove so many of the, the freedoms and the things that we do take for granted. You know, I, I feel like I kind of keep coming back to this during each of these episodes, but I do think that almost the most uh, frightening thing that could come from this uh, pandemic is that not that everything's totally changed, but it's over that everything goes back to being the exact same. Like, I really do think that uh, what we're seeing right now um, with the pandemic and the responses to it, and we were seeing before that is just so indicative that something needs to change, that something with the the way that our, our government's organized, the way that our world's organized needs to change. It's a matter of how how we can do that. And I, I like to think the people who are formulating these ideas really do have the greatest good in mind and are doing it with the, the hope that they can make people's lives better rather than uh, seize power or create some sort of authoritarian nightmare state. Absolutely. So thank you for joining us yet again. On that Alia podcast, it's my hope that each one of these episodes is getting a little better, and I think also a little shorter, uh, <laughs> which probably the listeners enjoy uh, even even that much more. So, if you like what we're doing, please stick along with us. Hit subscribe, leave a comment, leave a review. If you have any questions, let us know. And check us out on the newly launched thwart.org. Uh, our, our parents side. yeah small media <laughs> empire we got going over here but if you like uh, our thoughts check out some of our essays they're a little bit more straightforward to the point thank you for listening thank you <laughs>